Ski, shoot, repeat. Welcome to Biathlon Backstories. Welcome to another in our series of Biathlon Backstories, where we capture the spirit of the past and enjoy some biathlon races from way back when. This episode, we're going back in time to February 1992 and the Albeville Winter Olympics, the first time that women's biathlon featured at the Winter Olympic Games. The link to the video for this episode is tinyurl.com slash biathlon1992. That's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash biathlon one nine nine two. Women were late arrivals to the biathlon scene. As a sport with its roots in the military, it needed a cultural shift to enable women to have access to guns, and it carried with it the sexist misconceptions about women's ability to compete in endurance sports. The 1980s saw the emergence of women's biathlon at a formal international level, and 1992 saw its arrival into the Olympic family. Interestingly, there was immediate parity in terms of the numbers of events. Both men's and women's competitions had an individual race, a sprint, and a relay. If you'd like more on the history of women's biathlon, have a listen to episode 8 of this podcast called A Woman's Work, which you can find at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Let's go back then to February 1992. It really felt like the world had turned a corner. The Berlin Wall had fallen in November 1989, and the Soviet Union had dissolved in December 1991, just two months before our race. New identities and nations were emerging from the rubble, and if you lived through that time, you felt like a weight had been lifted. On the 1st of February 1992, just a week before the Games opened, President George W. Bush and Russian President Boris Yeltsin met at Camp David and formally declared the end of the Cold War. The threat of nuclear war had always lurked like a shadow, but it was gone now, at least for a while. Books were written with titles like The End of History, as if we'd finally figured out how to be in the world and we were going to usher in a new period of peace, or at least peace at the mega scale. Civil wars flared, though, as nations tried to create or recreate themselves. And the first Gulf War was underway following the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. Peace was only ever partial. We were all listening to Brian Adams singing Everything I Do, I Do It For You, and watching Robin Hood, Terminator 2, and Silence of the Lambs. We like to think of the 90s as the decade of things like grunge and Britpop, but they were only just beginning. Nirvana's Nevermind was released in September 1991, but took some time to make its mark. When you watch the video, you'll see that February 1992 looks more like your image of the 1980s than how you imagine the 1990s. Decades never change as neatly as we think. I have a personal connection to the Albeville Olympics, admittedly one that was only made about 20 years after the fact. A group of us were on holiday in Le Plan in the French Alps to celebrate a friend's birthday. It was a significant birthday for her, one with a zero at the end so we agreed to do something spectacular to market. That was to go on the 1992 bobsleigh run, which remains one of the most ridiculous and adrenaline fueled things I've ever done. 
Honestly, I have never laughed, screamed and cried all at the same time in the way that I did hurtling down a bobsleigh track at almost 120 kilometers per hour. But back to the action. It's the 14th of February, 1992, and we are in Les Saisies, the home venue for the biathlon and cross country at these games. We've already seen the women's individual and sprint races, and now we're gearing up for the relay. It's three by seven and a half kilometers, and we have some athletes to watch. The powerhouse teams are interesting because they've been reshaped just as Europe has. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we now have what is called the unified team. And with the reunification of East and West, we now have a team simply called Germany. Let's start with them. Antje Mizerski, now Antje Harvey, was a phenomenal cross-country skier as a teenager living in East Germany. Her father was a coach for the East German national team. She won relay cross-country bronze medals at world level as a junior in 1984 and as a senior in 1985 when she was just 17 years old. But then the moment came. Team officials would provide her with a pill every day, which she knew was a steroid of some sort. Her father stood up to the system and was fired. Antje refused to take the drugs and was forced to quit the sport. A couple of years later, everything changed. The fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany meant a new sporting culture and new opportunities. Perhaps it wasn't perfect, but maybe it was a chance. Antje came back to the snow as a biathlete. In 1992, still aged just 25, she's just won gold in the individual race and silver in the sprint. Now she's lining up alongside teammates Ushi Diesel and Petra Belashaf to represent her country in the 3 by 75 kilometer relay. Petra Schaff was the reigning world champion in the individual discipline, but a bad day on the range meant she'd only finished 13th in the Olympic event a few days earlier. She had improved to 6th in the sprint race. Ushi Diesel was at the start of her illustrious career, but wayward shooting in the individual had pushed her down to 24th, and she was outside the top 10 in the sprint event too. So the German team had one medal star, and two teammates with something to prove. Who better to prove it against than the unified team, the collective identity of the countries that had previously made up the Soviet Union? This is a nation that had won all eight editions of the women's relay in the World Championships to this point. Their team was made up of Yelena Belova, Amfisa Retsova, and Yelena Melnikova. Melnikova stepped in for Svetlana Petrskaya, the silver medalist from the individual event, who was ill. Retsova and Belova had taken gold and bronze respectively in the sprint race. Melnikova's coming in fresh. I've talked about Retsova in a previous episode, her cavalier confessions about doping, at least later in her career. It's perhaps a sign of the times from the early 90s that I've mentioned two teams so far, and the word doping has come up with both of them. This was only one Olympic cycle removed from Ben Johnson's disqualification at the Summer Games, something which brought science to the forefront of sport, but which also demonstrated that you could win through doping if you could only find ways to do it where you wouldn't get caught. Anyway, other teams to watch in this race, the host nation France, composed of Corinne Niogre, Véronique Claudel and Anne Briand. Niogre is only 19 years old, and it's a lot to ask to lead off a relay in a new sport in your home Olympics. Claudel had finished fourth in the individual race, missing out on a medal by just seven seconds. Briand had finished seventh in the sprint, from a bib number of 50. Now there's a mantra in biathlon that high bib numbers generally mean you're less favoured in the race, so to get seventh place from a 50 start number is quite an achievement. 
you can sense that there's potential in this team and the home crowd may help. Watch out also for Norway, Bulgaria and perhaps Czechoslovakia to make an impact. So this is a relay, which means that all the biathletes are carrying spare shots. Basically, you're still trying to hit five targets, but you have three spare rounds, so you get eight shots to hit the five targets. If you still haven't hit them all at this point, it's a penalty loop for every miss. The other thing to say about this video, it's long, and it's got a lot of stuff that I find fascinating in the run-up to an event and after the race. The race itself, itself starts at 8 minutes 30 into the video. I will say my favourite moment of behind-the-scenes stuff happens around about 13 minutes, and there are some key moments in the race which I'll mention as I go through this episode. Another thing to note, there's no commentary. This means that you get some stadium announcers giving updates and quite a lot of heavy breathing and grunting as the competitors struggle through the race. So get your popcorn ready, head on over to tinyurl.com slash biathlon1992 that's t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com slash biathlon1992 to watch the race and I'll see you in a while. Our video begins with an Olympic flame and some scenes of people walking around the town of Les Saisies with a slightly unsettling David Lynch Twin Peaks type soundtrack. I never thought winter sports could feel so creepy. We get to see the snow conditions. It looks like February 1992 was a beautiful time to be in the Alps, and is perhaps a reminder of how much has changed in the past 30 years climate-wise. Another thing that's changed are the clothes. Back in 1992, it was very much block colours and baggy ski gear. The 80s had a long tail into the early 90s, at least in the mountains. At three minutes into the video, we get a weather graphic, which serves to show us the progress in computer graphics over the past three decades, and also tells us that it's a crisp, cold day. It's a little cloudy, and there's a small amount of wind, but it shouldn't affect the shooting too much. At four minutes, we get a nice graphic that would be useful now too. There's an overhead map of the track, although nothing to indicate your direction of travel, but also a rolling graphic showing the rise and fall of the circuit through the lap. It's a nice thing to look at, and it tells us that this track is lumpy, with no real opportunity for rest. At five minutes, we get the start list. There are 16 teams of three races each. It'd be a couple of years before the four-person relay team became the norm. At six minutes, we get a look at the range, some flags, some Olympic officials in off-white, an umpar band in the stands, and now some biathletes getting ready for the start. The stadium announcer is introducing the teams. Number one is Norway. Number two is Germany, and look how small Ushi Diesel is on the start line. Number three is France. Watch out also for number seven, Bulgaria, and number eight, the unified team. At eight minutes 30, the race starts, and you get a real sense of speed as they accelerate away. That's something that doesn't always come with the camera angles now. The high angle here really suggests speed. And note the technique, the classic start, but then into more freestyle mode once we're out on the track. As we head out onto lap one, you'll hear bird, bird song the sound of skis slicing through snow, and the voices of coaches. You might get a bit of an ASMR vibe, or feel a little sleepy, and that's okay. In the early stages, Jelena Belova goes out into the lead, with Gabriela Suvova of Czechoslovakia and Ushi Diesel following. Corinne Njogre of France and Nancy Bell of the USA follow behind. 
At 11 minutes 36, we get some amazing ski gear being worn by a coach who's decided to pick all of the colours at the same time. Belova, Diesel and Suvova are still out front. Niogre is a few seconds behind, managing her effort. Others follow in line. You can hear their breathing. The lumpy course is already taking its toll. There's no time to relax and breathe. Just lots of burst efforts. Look at around 12.45 on the video and the steepness of the hill that they have to climb. I will confess that my favourite moment of this film is at 12 minutes 52, where a spectator walks out into the camera's line of sight and you hear the cameraman's response. If you watch nothing else, just go to tinyurl.com slash biathlon1992, scroll forwards to 12 minutes 52 seconds and listen. It's very lovely. Back to the racing and Suvova is starting to be dropped as Belova puts the pressure on. Diesel is hanging in there, but this is a lot of effort for someone who's been uncertain in the range so far in these games. Will her shooting hold up? Nyogre remains solid in fourth for France. There's a brief pause where there's no camera, and then we get back to the racing at 14.45 and see Diesel has put some pressure on Belova coming into the range. Belova is almost upright, skiing into the range preparing to shoot. At 15.12 they come into the range. Note the order of shooting positions. Lane 1 is the first one on arrival, which is backwards from what we see now, where lane 1 is the furthest along the range, or nearest to the exit, if you like. There's a really nice side-by-side -side graphic of the targets for lanes 1 to 8. You might need to squint if you're watching on a small screen, but you can just about track progress. Oh, and be patient. This is not the present-day era of 25 seconds to release 5 shots. This is a more measured time. Belova is in lane 8 and starts really well. She's up first and away. Diesel is having problems in lane 2. Njogre of France and Blagaeva of Bulgaria in lane 7 get away. Wang Jingpin of China shoots clear and moves, moves them up the order, but Belova has a strong lead. Diesel has had a rough time and ended up on the penalty loop, so she's over a minute down in 6th and looking full of rage. Into lap 2. This could be so easy for the unified team. Remember they've won the last eight world championships. They're half a minute up on China, who no one expected to see at the front. But then you never know. Bulgaria and France follow along next. At 18 minutes 40, we see a replay that shows that Belova's lead could have been even greater if she hadn't taken a wrong turn leaving the range, lost a few seconds getting back on the right track. Out on lap two and we wait to see the action. There are some blind spots going on, so we don't know how the race is unfolding. Belova comes into view looking okay, but maybe with a bit of fatigue in her shoulders. Behind her, there is a chasing group of France, China, Bulgaria and Finland in number four. But Belova has a solid lead. Diesel is still in sixth, but she's made up 10 seconds stomping around the tracks. Corinne Yogre is getting a lot of crowd support as she moves up into second. She's coping with the hills better than some of the others. The leaders are coming into the range for the second shoot. We're at 24.30 in the video. Belova looks easy, taking the pace off towards the range again. She's had the circuit to herself, heads to lane eight. The others are coming in as she sets up, and we get to watch her shoot close up over her shoulder. Note the small ashtray on a stick, which is basically a dish full of ammo. There's a dish at prone height and one for the stand. That's something that doesn't exist anymore. It's three out of five for Belova, and she's into the dish of spare rounds. Njogre in lane three shoots clear and fast and comes out with the Bulgarian Blagaeva for company. 
That shows what good shooting can do. Norway have shot clear too, but Belova is on the penalty loop. Diesel is struggling again, but makes it, comes out not, for high, not far behind Belova on the tracks. Njogre and Blagaeva have a decent advantage as they head out onto the tracks and prepare for the handover to the second leg skiers. It's Blagaeva of Bulgaria who's stamping away in a bright green, pink and purple suit. Njogre is working hard to stay with her. Belova has caught the Norwegian and passed her, and you can see Diesel is pushing to close the gap. The leader's advantage is down to 22 seconds. At 31 minutes in the video, there's a lovely bit of breathless conversation between a coach and an athlete. Without commentary, you really get to hear the effort. Norway and Finland are falling back behind Russia and Germany now. Diesel is thriving having someone to chase and must feel a bit better being so close to Belova after a bad start on the range. At 33.20, Bulgaria and France head into the changeover. Njogre has saved something, is really flowing up that final hill. She'll bring France into the changeover with the lead, a great performance from a 19-year-old. Njogre is handing over to Veronique Claudel, Bulgaria to Najda Alexieva. The unified team will be Anfisa Retsova, and Germany will be Anche Mizerski, both medal winners already in these Olympics, so this should be a fun matchup. Also, if you're watching Suits, there's a change for the unified team. Retsova's in a red and blue suit, rather than the all-blue that Belova wore. Shout out to Finland, number four, who have hung on to the ski tails of Germany and Russia as best they could. On the tracks at 36.15, and Claudel has put the hammer down to ski away from Alexieva. Retsova has phenomenal ski speed in number eight and is already closing. She's like a shark on skis, hunting down Alexieva. She catches and passes her midway round the first circuit. Mizerski is trying to stay in touch wearing number two for Germany, but she looks quite laboured. That might just be her style, or it might be a sign of the week's endeavours catching up with her. At 39 minutes, we can see that Retsova is already on the back of Claudel. The speed! The crowd are shouting, Veronique, Veronique, but it's not enough. At 40 minutes and 30 seconds in the video, here come Retsova and Claudel into the range for their prone shoot. It feels like we're back where we started, with the all-powerful unified team set to take control of the race. There's a quick shot of Claudel loading her rifle. Retsova has the first three down before Claudel has fired a shot, but she's missed one. Claudel shoots clear, and Retsova is struggling with her final shot, and she's going on to the penalty loop, so this will be a huge advantage for France, ahead of Mizerski of Germany and Alexieva of Bulgaria. Retsova comes out in fourth. At 43 minutes 30, if you want to get a close look to the shooting, here's some footage of Hildegard Fossen of Norway. Look at the hulking size of that rifle, and watch her loading rounds in from that little ashtray. We get a quick overhead of someone taking a lone trip round the penalty loop. That's Fossen of Norway, although she's holding their position steady in sixth. At 45 minutes 30, we have some shots of the crowd, then back to the racing to see Claudel and Mizerski out front, with Retsova and Alexieva behind. Mizerski is using her sprint speed to pass Claudel, who's going to try and hang in there. Retsova looks so well balanced on her skis and is closing the gap down with real energy up the hills. She's the first one I've seen dancing uphill rather than stamping. At 48.10, there's some more quiet time. It makes you realise how well put together today's coverage is. You might get the odd moment with no one in shot, but not these lingering shots of the trees and signs while you wait for an athlete to appear. It's the finish by athlete who comes into shot, then leaves our view again. 
We're going to stay with this camera point for a while as the leaders are in a black spot of coverage somewhere up ahead. Soon our leaders come into the range and it's Mizerski of Germany, from Retsova of the Unified Team, from Claudel of France. But they're all pretty close. Mizerski's laboured style on her skis is just that, her style. She's fast, but a bigger build than the speedster Retsova, so she looks slower in the way she moves. And it's the standing shoot, 51 minutes into the video. We have Germany in lane one, France in three, Russia in lane eight, and we get to watch the targets side by side. Veronique Claudel is amazing and shoots five out of five, while Mizerski misses at least one and Retsova dithers. Claudel is out first, then Mizerski. Retsova is lucky to avoid the penalty loop. She's still within 30 seconds of the lead. We know how fast she can be. Alexieva of Bulgaria is hanging in there in fourth, ahead of Finland, but the top three are looking pretty solid now. We get a bit more time to watch Fossen on the range for Norway, then a side-by-side -side of Sweden in 14 and Estonia in 15 finishing their standing shoots. At 55 minutes we go out to the tracks again and see that Mizerski of Germany has taken a lead over Claudel, no doubt aware of who's chasing. The gap back to Retsova is down to maybe 15 seconds. I confess I had her as the villain of the piece because of her cavalier response to her own doping history and her willingness to throw accusations around about others. For all that I dislike her, I can recognise that she's really fast over the snow, and this is definitely a three-horse race. Again, she's on the back of the French athlete before you know it, just eating up time gaps. It's the uphills. The theory says that the uphills are where you make up time as everyone goes downhill at pretty similar rates. At 56 minutes 35, we get another look at our man in all the colours, who I now realise is part of the German squad. He's watching the Bulgarian athlete Alexieva coming through in fourth. She's on her own out there, but sticking with it. Tuija Silvio of Finland comes through next. We follow her, her through some of the ups and downs of the circuit. And it's handover time. At 58.20, the leaders are coming into the arena. Who else would it be but Anfisa Retsova, who's turned a 30-second deficit into a 7-second lead over Germany and is handing over to Elena Melnikova. Remember that Melnikova is the late stand-in for a sick teammate. She hasn't raced in these Olympics and is really the baby of the unified team. Mizerski is handing over to Petra Schaff for Germany. She's known for being fast. While Claudel hands over to Anne Briand, carrying all of France's expectations on her shoulder. Briand has a big gap to make up, some 30 seconds as Claudel faded on her final lap. But she's comfortably ahead of Bulgaria and the crowd are maybe feeling confident of a bronze medal for the host nation. Eva Skradeva takes over for Bulgaria, well ahead of Terry Makinen for Finland. And we want to get out of the tracks and see what's happening between the big two. At 1.02.49 we find them on track and it's Schaaf who has gone hardest, pulling back Melnikova's seven second advantage and passing her in the first third of a lap. Briand has brought her deficit down to just over 10 seconds, an aggressive start, and now maybe the home crowd are dreaming of something bigger than bronze. And we wait in suspense for our next look. At just after one hour and four minutes in the video, we see our second and third place racers. Melnikova from the Unified team, ahead of Briand from France, and it's close. And the home crowd are chanting for Anne Briand as she takes Melnikova going uphill and starts to look towards Schraff up ahead. Under the bridge and into the arena at 105.44, and Anne Briand is going for it. She's taken the lead from Petra Schaff. But is this too much of an effort too early into the final leg? They come into the range and lie prone. Melnikova joins them before they fire a shot. 
one each, two, three, four. And it's five out of five for Briand. It's a slower shoot for Schaff, who has to use one spare. But look at Melnikova in lane eight. She's last in, but first out, shooting clean and fast, not relying on anyone else's rhythm. That was pretty impressive and worth rewinding and watching again. The unified team in France now coming out in first and second, with Germany behind, but they're only a handful of seconds in it and we know that Schaff can be quick. How long will Brion sit behind Melnikova? Well, they're not even out of the stadium and Brion takes the lead. She's not going to wait around. Shkodeva is in the range for Bulgaria. We get one of those moments when the cameramans realise they've pointed at the wrong targets, which is something that still happens today from time to time. At 1 hour and 9 minutes, we get some coverage of Markkanen for Finland, shooting beautifully and quickly too. You can see now the importance of getting faster in the range, and how the 90s would see the acceleration of shooting as a way to gain time in the race. At 1 hour, 11 minutes and 45, we see our race leader coming towards us, and it's Anne Briand of France. She's up to about 12 seconds ahead of Petra Schaff, who has Melnikova close behind her. We get snippets of conversation from people in the quiet among the trees. Everyone is waiting, and there's a tension in having no information. It's like waiting for Apollo to come back into contact from the dark side of the moon. At one hour and 14 minutes, we see the Bulgarian in fourth, but it's not who we're waiting for. We want to see the leaders. We have this insatiable need to know. We're so used to being fed data during sport, timings on screen, live gaps, tweets, commentary, updates. You can't help but feel lost, unmoored, drifting in this uncertainty. One hour and 15 minutes, there's a release of the tension. Air horns signal an arrival as Anne Briand comes into the stadium. This is huge. She's 23 years old. It's a home crowd. The shooting is for a gold that no one would have expected. The crowd falls silent. Schaff comes into the range for Germany. Briand. Hit. Hit. Miss. Hit. Hit. Schaff. Hit. 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 Miss. Miss. Briand is ahead but needs two spares to take down the final target. Schaff uses two to get rid of hers. Melnikova can only manage three out of five as Brion takes down the final target and skis away, with Schaff only a few seconds behind. And it's a ski race, and the French crowd is jumping and shouting and screaming, and even the Olympic officials have lost their impartiality. Seven seconds is Brion's advantage over Schaff, and it's a further 20 seconds back to Melnikova. One hour and 19 minutes, we go back to Anne Briand, still holding an advantage over Petra Schaff. There's some avid coaching alongside her, and a sense of possibility the lead has extended by a few seconds. Melnikova isn't coming back from this, and it'll be bronze for the unified team. Schaff is not giving up, but surely it's too much. Briand is flying and extending her lead. She's almost a minute ahead of an exhausted Melnikova now, and she's looking light and bright on her skis. After another big hill, she has over 15 seconds on Schaff, and there's an urgency among the crowd, so she won't let up. And we cut to the stadium at 1 hour, 23 minutes, and the crowd know what's coming. It's Anne Briand in the last 300 metres. She looks tired, but she won't relent. The German is in the shot behind her, and she's battling to the end, willing herself over the last crest to the delight of the fans. Briand is over the line, punching the air with a huge smile before collapsing to the snow. Germany come in second, 22 seconds behind, with Melnikova in third for the unified team.
You can watch the other races come in or stop now. There are some celebratory shots of the crowd, the Olympic flame, a replay of the moment Anne Briand crossed the line and brought France an unexpected gold. Bulgaria come in fourth, with Finland in fifth, Sweden sixth, Norway and the rest to follow. A shout out to Hungary, who finished 16th out of 16, some 15 minutes behind the winners. It's pretty close on the line for the teams from 8th to 14th, and there are some exhausted biathletes coming in at the end, having played their part in a milestone event for women's biathlon. After the race, Anne Briand went on to win two medals at the Lillehammer Winter Olympics in 1994, seven World Championship medals, 35 World Cup podium finishes, and the overall World Cup for the 1994-95 season. She later started a career in agricultural research. Veronique Claudel also won multiple medals at world level, and reunited with Briand to take a relay bronze at the Lillehammer Games. She was a stalwart of French biathlon, her local ski club named their stadium after her. Corinne Yogre was the baby of the trio at just 19, and went on to a decorated career through the 90s. She won two individual gold medals at the World Championships in 1995 and 2000. She also joined up with Claudel, Briand and Delphine Heyman to take that relay bronze in Lillehammer. She remained, invo- she remained involved with biathlon as an administrator and a broadcaster, but now spends more time in the sunny south of France than in the mountains. One last thing. Many of you will know that I have a fondness for mascots, so let me tell you the story of Magique and the Missing Goat. Magique was the mascot for the Albeville Winter Olympics in 1992. Magique was an imp with a red hat and a blue body. Imagine a five-pointed star with a cube at its centre, and you'll get a sense of the design, which was created by Philippe Marès. The spirit of the 90s was important to the design. The organising committee were after something abstract, graphic, and that would create a certain atmosphere rather than a cutesy animal. Philippe Marès himself said, that was the spirit of the 1990s. Let's move forward. Let's design everything. But maybe, he went on, the idea of not creating a mascot that was a teddy bear resulted in something that wasn't as emotional. I find Magique emotional, very funny, but, but it was maybe more something graphic, more suited to a cartoon than a mascot, he said. So what about the missing goat? Well, another designer, Michel Pirus, had created a mascot called Ola, a chamois goat, which is a type of mountain goat that lives in the Alps and across the mountain ranges of southern and central Europe. Ola was created as a mascot and was part of the closing ceremony in Calgary in 1988, the previous Winter Olympics, and was ready to take on the mascot mantle for the next four years, until he was superseded by Magique for the Albeville Games themselves. Poor old Ola, gone too soon. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to different background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Do follow us on Twitter, at skishootrepeat, and on Instagram, skishootrepeat. Please do get in touch and tell me what's right and what's wrong. This podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I expect to get fact-checked. And let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. There will probably be another one or two uh, biathlon backstories before the next uh, season of real racing, current racing starts. 
Um, so if there's anything that you would like me to, to watch and reflect on, please do let me know. And we'll start building up towards the next season in um, September, October, as we head towards the winter. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.